the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. All right. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Lifeline, 18th day of November, and uh, we are exactly one week away from Thanksgiving. If you have um, been hearing us talking about our campaign to provide meals for a thousand needy families, families really living on the edge this year because of uh, the compound challenges of COVID and the economy and the cost of living, particularly in the Bay Area. Um, And you have not yet perhaps made your call, made that pledge. I want to encourage you to do so. We got T-minus seven days and counting exactly down to Thanksgiving. And uh, starting early portion of next week, the Boxes of Hope will begin uh, distribution in earnest to all of the families coming to receive them. And so uh, we want you to be a part of that Thanksgiving miracle in not only addressing the felt needs, but the spiritual needs as well of these hurting families. So go to kfax.com, click on the Bay Area Rescue Mission banner at the top of our homepage. And to find out more about the ministry, you can simply find them online at bayarearescue.org. That's bayarearescue.org. Gift of $60 will provide the average family of five enough meals to get through several days. So uh, this this is going to be make it and break it time for some families dealing with high cost of living. You've seen the price at the pump. Now they're dealing with, you know, pay the electric bill to keep the heat on or go have a nice Thanksgiving meal. And for a lot of families, that just isn't an option this year. Let's bring some hope and encouragement into their life. Go to bayarearescue.org. All right, much to talk about. Speaking of the holidays, our dear friend Shelly Beach will join us later on. We'll talk about the challenges of being a caregiver during the holiday season, and in particular, how you meet the needs of a loved one dealing with Alzheimer's. That conversation coming up a little bit later on in this first hour. You've no doubt seen the news. The jurors in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial went home this evening and will gather tomorrow for their fourth day of deliberations in an effort to try and reach a verdict in the controversial shooting case. As you'll recall, Rittenhouse, age 18, charged with first-degree intentional homicide, first-degree reckless homicide, and attempted first-degree intentional homicide stemming from the shootings of that violent night of protest following an issue of, again, sadly enough, police brutality, in this case in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Rittenhouse facing a mandatory life sentence if convicted on the most serious charges. This once again raises concerns over once the verdict is handed down, how will the public respond? Violence historically begets violence. Help us pour a little bit of oil on those waters. We're joined now by a very special guest, Dr. Alveda King. She, of course, the niece of the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. She is founder of Speak for Life, best-selling author and Fox News contributor. Dr. King, always a uh, extreme pleasure to have you join us on the program. 
Well, it's just a blessing to join you tonight as well, younger listeners. Hello, everyone. This um, this is an, a, a, a troubling case. There, there's there's aspects of it that feels very vigilante justice in it, and I know that there's been a, a microscope put on not only the case but also on the handling by the judge and so forth. But but perhaps to the to the heart of the bigger concern here, and that is that once this is handed down, while there are not necessarily direct racial overtones to this case, um, there are concerns nevertheless that it has the potentiality in terms of the reaction on the streets to go the way we've seen other verdicts, going back as far back as 92 with the Rodney King verdict, Um, more recent memory in 2014, the Ferguson riots, certainly the tragic riots that resulted from the the tragic death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in uh, just barely a year and a half ago in May of 2020. How do you think all of this is going to come together? I'm just really not sure. There are several elections that the decision could take, what the jurors could do or just not do. However, I think we've been here before. And with me having lived for seven decades, I'm 70 years old, I have lived through America's uh, challenges and joys and sadness and all of that. So I was watching and I decided, I just sat here and I began to pray. And I said, God, there's too many things happening at once we've got the Rittenhouse case. All right, so what we have in three different states, Oklahoma, Georgia, and Wisconsin, an opportunity for violence, confusion, and fear to erupt and break forth. So I just sat here and I began to think about my dad, Reverend Alfred Daniel Williams King, and he talked about, in the midst of turmoil, how Jesus spoke to the storm and said, Peace be still. So I said, Lord, somebody's got to call for prayer, wisdom, peace, and we have to not be confused and angry and frightened and violent, but we've got to have some reason and some human dignity. So that's where I find myself um, as we're waiting for this decision to come forth. And, of course, as you point out, not only do we have a history of explosions happening in a, in a figurative and almost literal sense following a controversial trials of this case, but we're in the midst of others to, to, to see in the short horizon. We're right in the middle of the Ahmed Aubrey shooting case in, uh, there in Georgia, and, uh, right. and, and, and there are dynamics of that that are very unhealthy as well. Absolutely. And then in Oklahoma, the governor did decide to stay in execution uh, and give a life sentence. So all of these things are happening at one time. People are still somewhat reeling from the fear and the uh, fright of COVID and so many different things have, having an opportunity to throw us into confusion and anarchy and chaos. But the answer is not. We've got to fear not to be nonviolent to remember human dignity in each of these situations. And so uh, it just so much depends on the human hearts and the human consciences that have to answer all of this as well. So I just want the violence to end. Interestingly enough, I had been reading some letters from some little children, and a school teacher had them write papers. What is your dream? You know, and so they would say, I have a dream that COVID will be on. I have a dream that people will stop dying and hurting each other. And so some of the answers and direction for prayer 
can be gotten from the letters of these little children who really just want peace and safety again. Can that happen in America? Absolutely. What will it take? We've got to be reasonable. We've got to be nonviolent. We have to have some wisdom. We have to remember human dignity and not fight each other and allow ourselves to simmer and simmer and bubble over and erupt into violence. That's what we have to understand. We're one blood, one human race anyway. So the issues of racism, for instance, we're fighting over skin color and letting ourselves be deceived into thinking that having different skin color makes us different races. And then we give it an answer. Oh, let's be colorblind. Let's not see each other's ethnicity. We need to see each other, regard human dignity. We need to pray. We need to repent. So my heart is just so stirred today in considering what can happen and what will happen, even with the written out case. So I'm just asking people to pray and be reasonable and not just fight and be scared. You know, the, the enemy just revels in division and sowing yes. seeds of of, of uh, discourse and infighting fear confusion discourse and all these things yep yeah and uh, and your 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 point i think is is a very poignant one uh, dr king and that is the notion that we need to number one act like adults start behaving like adults and be mindful that in our behavior in our reaction to even cases like the the pending verdict in the kyle rittenhouse case that how we behave is being watched at two levels is being watched number one and most importantly by god himself and secondarily it's being watched by young children and they're going to pattern their life after the kind of mentoring that we display and if we display calm and reason and we work together, we dialogue, we talk things out, we find points of, of, of unity and points of compromise, everything will be okay. If we continue to act like a bunch of crazy fools, as my grandmother used to say, children are going to see that, and they're going to learn from that, and then they will grow up to repeat the mistakes of this generation. Absolutely. And so we stop now by praying. And my prayer, really, even listeners, honestly, as you examine all these matters, that are before us, you just have some wisdom and some prayer and fear not and fight not and let's calm this storm or allow God to calm it in our hearts at least. And so that's really what motivated me to get get on the computer today and to say, say peace be still, peace be still. Amen. And this is a good opportunity to, to call all the church together, uh, to be in that spirit of of pouring the oil on the water, as we said earlier, be in prayer for the nation, and encouraging people to, yeah, take a deep breath, peace, be still. Dr. Ovita King, it's always a privilege and an honor to have you join us on the program. By the way, she continues to be heavily involved in the pro-life movement. Information on the web at priestsforlife.org. There's Dr. Alvita King, 515 from KFAX. Let's get you an update on traffic. The biggest misconception about uh, adoption is that it's, um, it's not a viable option. It's just not looked at as a viable option. Today, most girls who are dealing with unplanned pregnancies don't even think about it as an option. I think the biggest misconception about adoption is that it is somehow second-rate life um, rather than God's plan and intent. 
Some people believe that, you know, all children are supposed to stay with their birth family, and, you know, that's not necessarily true. You know, being adopted can open up different opportunities that nobody could have foreseen. God had a plan for me. He knew that I needed to be adopted because I wouldn't have gotten nurtured in a family where my birth mother was still a teenager and my birth father wasn't there anymore. I know that I have a purpose, a God-given purpose here, and my children have a, a purpose. He knew from the beginning what was going to happen. Um, and although um, I'm firmly believing that we have complete freedom of choice, nevertheless, God sees the end from the beginning. And he intended that I exist. I believe that. It was very emotional when my children were born. I thought about the fact that I was in a hospital with my mom for a very short time and then I was taken away from her and uh, and that sense of separation was very present in my mind. I recognized that for my mom, for my birth mom, it must have been very very painful. Uh, to give birth is painful in its own right and then to give up your child is another big sort of wrench. But she did it and I'm believing that she did it because she wanted the best thing for her son. And she didn't, um, she didn't waver. She, she had decided what that was, and she went through with it. Um, and I respect that. Putting the child into a family where they were going to be loved and nurtured is just something so magnificent. It's a sacrificial act of love. It's not an easy decision. It's not for everyone. I'd like to see our culture, our societies, our families come alongside birth mothers and elevate their status to a hero status, because that's really what a, a woman who chooses to an adoption plan for her child is. The parents who raise you are the parents who give you the family and they give you purpose, but your birth mother gives you life. I always thank God for my mom, so I always think of her on my birthday, because she gave me my birthday. I thank her for giving me that gift. I'm very uh, appreciative and thankful, and it's a celebration of her, not me, for making such a great choice and a sacrifice that she gave me. Heroes, yes, heroes indeed. Ironically, there are aspects of our culture that I think, erroneously so, deems putting a child up for adoption is an act of selfishness. Well, you were more concerned about your convenience. You just gave the child away. But in fact, I think it's an extreme act of love in allowing a child, recognizing the value of that child, bringing that child to term, and then also being adult enough to recognize, as in many cases, of a mother or family's complete incapacity to fully, completely, and properly care for that child and raise that child. And so instead to make that child known as someone that is to be cherished and loved and give a family an opportunity to do so, I see that as not an act of selfishness, but an act of extreme love. And the child, in a sense, has the benefit of that act of love from both the birth parent and, of course, that act of love by the adoptive parents as well. Why don't we hear more about things like this? Well, Real Options, in fact, is working to help women who find themselves in unplanned pregnancies to understand what their 
pardon the intentional pun here, real options are. And joining me with now more is Donna Heckey. Donna is the Vice President of Community Outreach and Development for Real Options. And Donna, I'm I'm touched by the story that we just heard because, as I say, when you think of it, it really is an incredible act of love to put a child into the loving arms of a family. Absolutely. I am an adoptee. I was in that video or segment. That my mom was a birth mom. Uh, she, when she got pregnant, she was 15 when she became pregnant with me, and she was very much pressured by her father to terminate her pregnancy. Um, the family was not did not have a healthy home life, um, but her mom and her resolved to to not choose abortion and make a loving adoption plan for me. So um, she's my hero, and I'm very grateful um, for the gift of my life and the gift of my family. Pretty special, isn't it? A, a gift of life and, as you say, a gift of family. And in, in relationship to both, share, if you would, Donna, a bit of a glimpse into your own life experience in terms of lessons that you've learned from both your parents, as well as your birth parents. Yeah, well, as you know, I'm an, as I just mentioned, I'm an adoptee, and my mom, I, I've learned my story. I've learned more and more of my story um, over the years. But um, when I turned 30, um, that's when I was interested in sort of finding out my story. I was adopted at um, two weeks old, and my my family provided me with love, provision, support. They had a very deep desire to make me part of their life and family. And they introduced me to my faith. They gave me the gift of siblings. They had a great education. They taught me life lessons with, and, and gave my life purpose. Um, but when I turned 30, I, um, I just thought about the fact that, you know, I mean, I want to have kids. I was married, and I didn't know a lot about my background. It's, it's, it's a natural, I think it's very natural if you're in a closed adoption to want to know a little bit about your story, regardless of whether or not you end up being in a relationship with them, but just to kind of know your health background, things like that. So my parents, I went to my parents first and just shared my desires and told them that um, I really needed help. Um with this search and were they willing to help me? And they said, absolutely. So I think the first lesson I learned was my parents who adopted me, their their love for me was unconditional. They weren't insecure about that. That's a very important one of the listeners that, you know, your child, it had nothing to, I wasn't looking for parents, but if you have an adopted child who's old enough to process and want to learn a little bit more, I think, you know, their love, it, it, it brought me closer to them because their love was so unconditional. So I think that's a lesson for all of us, including me. It, it really brought me closer to the parents who raised me. But um, I did end up finding my mom that same year, and she was um, just super happy that I found her, and um, she welcomed me into her life, and she became part of my family. And um, I've now been in a relationship with her for 29 years, and she's a grandmother to my kids. So that's the first, um, you know, part of, of the lesson. And then, um, so just because sometimes it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes birth moms, you know, are suffering in silence, or they never told anyone. My mom had told her husband it wasn't a secret. So she was very happy I found her. And she had never had children after me, so mm. she was very grateful for us wow. to find each other. And then last year in 2020, <clears throat> she didn't remember much about my dad. She was young. They went to different schools. They lived far away. 
and she had moved. She actually moved to a maternity home when she had me. I mean, when she was pregnant, she moved away from her family, and um, it was the best thing that ever happened to her. She basically told me that it got her into a safe environment, a healthy environment, and she flourished in school. She got straight A's, and she said it changed the trajectory of her life and that she decided to finish high school, go to college, she even got her master's. So getting pregnant with me didn't squash her dreams. It just, um, you know, she had to go through the pregnancy, obviously, and give birth, which is the hard part. Um, But it never squashed her dreams, and she always felt like she made a really good decision because she wasn't in a position to be able to parent me. Um, But I did do a um, Ancestry.com in 2020 and discovered I I had a cousin that, connected with me a first cousin and she ended up being connected to my my bio dad side of the family <laughs> and lo and behold i have a I'm, i met my dad and i have three siblings and seven nieces and nephews and they were super helped excited to welcome me into their family and he thought i had been aborted all these years wow the last time he heard from you know my mom was when he met with his her parents and the dad said he was they were terminating me so um, he was so happy, and uh, we actually met in 2020 on Father's Day. All my siblings flew out to meet, and we had a, our first gathering. And um, once that happened, he really wanted to talk to my birth mom. And um, so she gave me permission to give him her number, and he wanted to, he's been looking for her. He could never find her. And he uh, made amends with her. He apologized for putting her in that position, and he thanked her for having me. And it was just like this complete circle of love and redemption that was completely, that was complete. Well, and, and what's so beautiful God, about and, that, Donna, is that sense that uh, that unconditional love, as you described it a moment ago, and, and that's a good uh, juncture to talk about the ways in which real options really demonstrates that kind of unconditional support and love for women that come in that are confused. They've got this situation now on their hands that they weren't anticipating. There may be little, if any, support at home. In fact, there may be a boyfriend or a husband or family in the picture that is pushing her toward making an irreversible decision. Take a moment, if you would, and kind of walk us through how Real Options helps women considering adoption. Yes. So we um, provide adoption consultations. We provide referrals to adoption providers and networks and support groups. So we ha- we work with all the local agencies here in the area, and um, you know we'll, we try to find out what you know what are their wishes, what are what are they what are their desires, and then we pull these resources in to um, you know to help the birth mothers. We help them with housing referrals. Like my mom, one of the reasons I was drawn to real options is someone helped her. And when I found out real options existed, I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is crazy. This is what I want to do. I want to help women like my mom, right? Because if she didn't have the support, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. I wouldn't be here. Um, so we provide housing referrals. We do prenatal care. We do maternity clothes. And just ongoing support services. We walk. We represent. We protect the mother. Um, the adoption agency focuses on, you know, working with the mom, choosing the parents, and, you know, working with the adopted parents that she chooses, but we walk with the mom the whole way, you know, during her pregnancy, after pregnancy, and, you know, and even after birth and, and after her, after she delivers, and make sure she gets those, that support that she needs. So we're holistic in our approach, and we really focus on caring on the whole woman, you know, like I said before, during and after pregnancy. 
So um, that's one of the reasons I was drawn to real options because I felt like I could actually help in a really tangible way and help women like my mom who chose life for me and made, you know, made me possible. And the beauty of this ministry organization is just that. It, it helps women actually empowering them to have all the tools, all the resources necessary to, number one, make a fully informed decision. The opposite side likes to call it choice, but <laughs> when there's only one option on the table, that really isn't a choice, is it? If you went to a restaurant and they said, you can have anything you want to eat, but we serve spaghetti, you'd say, well, there's not many choices, are there? Maybe perhaps a poor analogy, but you get my drift. Real options gives women real choices. And in the end, a woman who desires to carry her child to term and place that child lovingly for adoption will have the kind of support that she needs. Emotional support, support in so many ways. This organization, of course, needs your support in order to continue doing what it does 12 months out of the year throughout many parts of the Bay Area. To get on board and find out more how you can support both in a practical fashion as well as through things like donating clothing, donating time, volunteering, go to friendsofrealoptions.net. That's friendsofrealoptions.net. And I want to thank Donna Heckey for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, the holidays are upon us, and for many, that's a time of joy, gathering of families and friends, and uh, celebrating the reason for the season, right? Well, that's not universal. Some people meet the holidays with fear and trepidation. It's a depressing time for some. And if you're a caregiver, caring for a loved one with dementia, it can be extremely challenging. Challenging because there's an uptick in demands and expectations and oftentimes things going on around the family that make an already challenging situation even more difficult. So how do we go about planning for the holidays when you are the caregiver of an individual with Alzheimer's or dementia? Well, conveniently, November is National Caregivers Month. Let's spend some time talking about it with an expert that's actually helped me in my own set of circumstances. Dear friend and wonderful author, Shelley Beach joins us. And Shelley, is always great to have you with us. It's good to be with you, Craig, and uh, to have the opportunity to, to talk about this. This is a, can be a complex, <laughs> complex situation, complex topic to talk about, so it's... Um, to be able to give some tips and and talk through some of these issues. And I, I should mention for listeners that uh, Shelley's counsel and advice, both directly and through um, many of her caregiving books, has assisted me uh, with my stepmother who has dementia. And, uh, you know, Shelley, this is, as they say, it, it's kind of a mixed blessing. We look forward as believers to the Christmas season, and yet this can be a, a frightening time if you have dementia because there's suddenly this major shift going on. If you're used to going out for walks during the day, you can't because it gets dark early and it's cold out. And then if the family is trying to keep some semblance of normalcy in the routine, and there are traditionally large holiday gatherings and many friends and family coming to the home, while caregivers might be excited for a little change of pace and and maybe even think that might bring some relief. In fact, it can make a difficult situation far worse. Tell us why. 
Well, a lot of the things you just mentioned in conversation are actually triggers for people with dementia. And, um, for instance, the cold, going from a warm environment to a cold environment can be very triggering and, and cause a person with dementia to kind of balk and throw themselves backwards or just not want to move out into that environment. So if they're going to a daycare situation or you're just trying to get them in the car, it can cause them to be combative. Um, the lights of Christmas um, can be very disorienting um, because very often people with dementia don't really comprehend what they're seeing, and it can look like something other than what it is. So when they see those holiday lights, it can be uh, very disorienting to them. And if we move a Christmas tree into the house and it has a lot of lights on it um, or and they're flashing or whatever, um, that may be something directly, you know, in their environment that can can throw them off. Um, a lot of things that simply change, change for anyone with dementia can be very hard for them to handle. So um, even, nuances, even nuances of things um, and visitors, um, having other people in the house or our, our, our schedules changing, all of those things can be triggering and, diffi- and difficult for them. So making decisions around those kinds of factors is important for us. And if you're a caregiver and you're thinking, okay, we've got some friend coming from family coming from out of town, they can help out, it's going to be good for mom to see uh, relatives and so forth. But dependent upon what stage mom may be in with dementia, there may be people coming to the house that are, you know, uh, dear friends and, and relatives, and to her, they're complete strangers. She doesn't recognize them. Or one thing that I found, and that is that with larger gatherings, when there's a lot of excitement going on, maybe there's kids and grandkids or nieces and nephews running about, scurrying about the hallways, conversations taking place, lots of laughter in the house, things that we normally associate with 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 fun and family gatherings may be very frightening for a person with dementia. They really can be. Um, I know that um, the more people... It's very hard for them to discern, and the the noise can be uh, triggered. Noise, lights, a lot of people, crowds, very disorienting. And actually, um, one of the suggestions that I had was, uh, it's very um, it's very much suggested for people who have um, kind of advanced Alzheimer's who've begun to forget who people are and have a hard time placing. Um, who they are, um, to prepare um, kind of a room for them where people can come and meet with them, a, qu- a quiet room that might be in their bedroom or, uh, you know, a downstairs or upstairs, someplace that's away from the noise. And, um, and you have people come to them one or two at a time. And we should always introduce people. We never should ask, uh, oh, mom, do you remember who this is? And uh, we never should place that um, responsibility on them to remember. We should always say, oh, we're so excited because Uncle Bobby and Aunt Susan are here to see you and um, give them names and provide them names and give them a little bit of history and say, maybe you remember when and provide them with a memory to kind of orient them to who the person or persons might be. 
um, and not put them, although we, we want them to be with us and it, it's hard for us, we have to think in terms of their abilities and what they can handle, which is generally not a lot of noise and, and a lot of um, activity around them. So, you know, kind of scheduling one-on-one time for them and, um, and putting them in a quieter environment and bringing people to them in smaller numbers. Some solid advice tonight on how to handle the challenges of the holiday season with a loved one who's dealing with dementia. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with best-selling author Shelley Beach as this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation with us today, best-selling author Shelley Beach. She is an award-winning author of a number of books, and uh, several of which um, focus on her experience with a family member dealing with the issue of caregiving and how to help a person that's challenged by dementia. And certainly during the holiday season, this can be exacerbated in so many ways. And Shelley, as we were mentioning just before the break, we have sometimes a sense of enthusiasm. Maybe family visiting means we're going to get a little help, which doesn't always pan out. And and, and family likes to play that, you remember so-and-so, and oh, let's go see grandma, and the kids will rush her. And for us, this is a joyous scene, but for the person dealing with dementia, it can be not only very disorienting, but there could even be layers where this is very frightening, can't it? In the sense that so much of their normal routine is suddenly disrupted by all of these festivities going on. Yes, um, yes, noise can be very disorienting, and what they're seeing. Um, there's overload, the, their eyes can't process, their brain can't process so much um, so much sensory um, input that's coming in um, through hearing, through sight, through, and their, their brain no longer has the capacity to, um, to, to basically make sense out of all those things. And so it, it's very, very frightening for them. Um, and uh, it's hard for us, I think, to probably be able to... Uh, to know what that would what that would feel like or what that would that would what that would you know how overstimulating that would be and how we would try to make sense of that so it's up to us really as caregivers to become experts on how we can give our loved ones the best experience we can simplify things for them and simplify their experience so they can um they can have a meaningful Christmas experience at their level and um, enjoy enjoy what's happening around them. So we can still be in the process of building memories during the Christmas and holiday season. We just, as you aptly pointed out, need to kind of tailor things at a pace that is not going to be frightening or disorienting for them, and it might not be the way we would choose to celebrate the holiday season. We like lots of family, lots of noise, open the doors, the neighbors come in, it's a constant stream of people all day long, but um, making some adjustments during the the holiday season might very well be in order. I'm wondering, too, any words of advice, Shelley, when it comes to addressing 
uh, shall we say, some of the uh, the perennial family stressors that sometimes seem to get um, amplified during the holiday season. Maybe that just has to do with the, the stress of the busyness of it all. And if we add a little bit of uh, a libation, if that's uh, the tradition at the family, <laughs> along with that, it can take a, a situation where there are some family stressors in there because you know what you did to me when we were six years old. <laughs> those those battles tend to get revived, and and uh, th- this can be particularly problematic if um, you're you're trying to kind of deal with family stressors while you're dealing with your loved one with dementia stressors. Any advice in that arena? Well, yes, it, it's very common that um, anytime you get family all together in one place, there are going to be there are going to be stressors. Um, you know, grief is very often involved, or there are relatives that are toxic. Um, maybe you're considered toxic to the other relatives. I don't know. And there can be family conflict, and um, there can be caregiving critics. Maybe, maybe you think you're pro- providing wonderful care for your loved one, and other one other family members don't. Um, so, it's good to think through these issues before the holidays, so that you can you can kind of limit your limit your proximity to people um, that might might trigger you and you can kind of prepare for for what they might say or how they might act and kind of develop um, what I would call um, avoidance strategies or exit strategies or think through how you might um, how you might um, handle uh, a difficult a difficult conversation and they might have a default conversation that they usually go to and just think through how you you might uh, prepare to uh, disengage from those and just let you know negative statements fall to the floor or just let them roll over you you might even want to talk to a counselor before these um, these holiday celebrations or parties or whatever occur and you know ask for some just suggestions about how to prepare but um, I think one of the most important things to remember is that it's important to be mindful and do this beforehand and um, and I think to remember that the work that we do as caregivers I think is some of the most Christ-like work we ever do because there's really there's no there's no payment for it here on, on earth and um, we're doing this and God's smiling on what we're doing we don't do it for other people to approve of what we're doing and so um, just to understand that what we're doing is extremely precious work to God and we don't we don't need anybody else's um, approval for it we just do it as well as we can and as lovingly as we can so you know, anticipate those stressors, let the negativity roll off our back as much as possible, and just don't engage, just don't engage, and um, save save those things for another uh, opportunity if you feel that there are things that really actually need to be talked through. Yeah, but so fi- fi- find a neutral good. time to work all that out, not, not halfway through dinner at Christmas Eve. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. 
Final question for you tonight, Shelley. Um, and, and there may be those in the family out there thinking, gee, in light of all that's going on um, for a sister, an aunt, a, a cousin, whomever it might be that is in that caregiver role, I wonder what they would like for Christmas. Are there things that folks can be thinking of when when they want to come together and, and show genuine support for the caregiver oh, that's good. looking after mom or dad or, or whomever that, that ought to be considerations for a Christmas gift for that caregiver? Yes. Yes, they want respite. They want help. They want some time off from their caregiving duties, and that can be large or small. You can, you can, um, you know, pay for somebody to come occasionally and give them respite um, once a week for a couple of hours, or you can um, help them get a, a weekend off or a week off. You can come, if you're a family member, come and stay for a week so that I know that that was really precious every year. Um, Dan's sister and brother-in-law came and stayed for a week with um, Dan's father so that we could get a, uh, an entire week off. There's financial help that you can give um, to help with um, bills that come up and or maybe modifications that need to be made to the home or just the added expense that is always there. Or perhaps a family member has had, uh, I, I quit my job so that I could help care for my parents. So uh, financial considerations um, and maybe their home repairs, um, you know, or maybe grab bars need to be added and installed in the house or there needs to be, um, you know, uh, you know, some kind of durable med- medical equipment that's needed or honestly just um, help cleaning out junk in the garage or it's fallen and you and they need help, you know, getting the leaves cleaned up or just tasks around the house can be incredibly helpful. I know um, even though Dan and I were caregivers, we both still had health issues. And so anything that was helpful to us that in, that had to do with, um, you know, major repairs on our house or those kinds of things would have been wonderfully helpful. So there are all kinds of ways that you can, and you can just ask. It might be, you know, a car repair, something, you know, as, you know, kind of mundane as that. Yeah, but for the for the person that's on the caregiving side, that 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 seemingly mundane gift uh, could be uh, a, a, an absolute welcome gift, as much as um, I don't know a, a free trip to Paris or something. So uh, there can be things great and small, and many of them very practical when you think about um, helping to support and encourage the caregiver who's looking after that loved one within your family with dementia. Shelly Beach, our guest today, she's got a number of best-selling books, and um, you can check them all. Um, you can check them all out online. You can go to her website. That's an easy thing to do, ShellyBeachOnline.com. That's ShellyBeachOnline.com, and some good insights with some holiday tips for caregivers. Coming up on 6 o'clock from KFAX, as we thank Shelly Beach for being with us, we're going to turn to corner. Very special guest joining me next. You know his voice, certainly, as speaker on the Verse by Verse broadcast here on KFAX and the legacy of the Ministry of Church of the Highlands and Pastor Don Sheely, a very dear friend for many, many years. And uh, undoubtedly, you are going to be in for a real treat. Joining us next around the corner on our Church of the Week profile, Pastor Leighton Sheely from Church of the Highlands of San Bruno, as this edition of Lifeline continues. 
trends were overpriced. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.